What is that when you jump around and carry on and do the who dat who dat stuff? Who dat? You know, that's really kind of a, a fan. You know, that's that's our 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 chant. Duncan Holder podcast back at you. Larry Holder, Jeff Duncan here on the Athletics Podcast Network. Appreciate everyone listening. If you are stuck at home, which I assume many of you are, uh, I know the Holder household is stuck at home. I know Jeff, uh, he fights the power to go uh, running uh, every day. But outside of that, he's stuck at home as well. So appreciate you guys jumping on. The Duncan Holder Podcast. Of course, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you can do it in a variety of ways. Of course, through The Athletic. And look, right now we're doing 40% off of the uh, annual subscription. If you just jump on theathletic.com slash Duncan Holder, you can get 40% off uh, on that. Or, of course, you can follow Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate, review, subscribe, do all that good stuff. But uh, look, since we are still a couple of weeks uh, into free agency. I figured maybe uh, we would piggyback off of a story, a couple stories I wrote last week, Jeff, on the best players to ever get away from the Saints. And I went deep into the history books uh, with that. But this podcast is going to be more focused on the Sean Payton, Drew Brees era. And Jeff, if you go look at that uh, initial list that I came up with that I dug through thousands of players in Saints history, if you look at the top 10 of my list that I had, uh, there are no players in the top 10 that were actually from the Sean Payton, Drew Brees era. Rob Ninkovich makes that list at number 12. And I guess that just goes to show you, A, how good this era of Saints football has been in player procurement, and B, maybe how bad the rest of the franchise has been for so many years, right? Yeah, look, I, that's the first thing that popped out to me was was that, that uh, most of those names were from previous coaching tenures, and uh, clearly Mickey Loomis, Sean Payton have done a good job of, of recognizing when a player might be dropping off before they let a player leave via free agency or trading them away. Uh, but also I think they've done a good job of recognizing who they want to keep. And we saw that this past offseason uh, when they were able to keep David Onyemata and Andres Pete, two players that likely, if they, w- they were young enough, if they would have gone on to other teams, they might have ended up on this list because both of them have a lot of talent and you figure they're both going to play for at least another five years probably. So uh, I think it's a credit to the organization uh, what they have in place right now uh, in their player evaluation, uh, because we've seen so many times old school Saints fans can, you know, name these players that have gotten away. It used to be kind of a little cottage industry among Saints fans to bring up the players that got away that went on to become a star somewhere else. And thankfully, uh, that's not happening very much anymore. I do think the one surprise, and I probably brought a surprise to Saints fans as we just look at this overall list that I have. You can go check it out. Uh, I wrote two stories last week uh, going through basically the top 70 players uh, that got away as far as approximate value using the pro football reference tool that Jeff and I really like to kind of lean on just because it places, I think, appropriate value, so even on offensive linemen and defensive linemen. So I think it's a fair gauge uh, in the scope of things. But look, I was surprised at, number one, that it was Kerry Collins. And a lot of people forget 
Uh, Even in the comments section, someone said, I forgot he even played for the Saints. But, uh, you know, he struggled with uh, playing for the Saints. And, of course, that's when – he got a DWI and uh, and then went to rehab and this, that, and the other, and then he turned his life around. But uh, but outside of Kerry Collins, I mean, some of the names you see, John Gilliam, Ken Burrow, Wes Chandler, all of those are like Saints draft picks that they all traded away, or John Gilliam walked away two years after uh, the start of the franchise. And you're wondering, man, what were some of these uh, player personnel folks thinking uh, in the 70s and, uh, and late 60s? Yeah, it, it, it's mind-boggling, some of the players. But, I mean, back then, the the decision-making was so bad in the front office. Uh, you know, I've, I've written a couple books on the Saints, obviously, and doing the research early on was just mind-boggling to me. First of all, who the, in the John Meekum era, who they were hiring to run the organization. If you remember, they actually had an, a former astronaut as the general manager at one time, Um so those decisions that were made really set the organization back uh, years and years, and, and they never were able to kind of move ahead, uh, never able to establish any kind of sustained success. And th- now they're the exact opposite of it. I mean, you've had the exact same head coach and uh, general manager in place for a decade and a half, and I think the stability that they brought into the scouting department uh, especially with Jeff Ireland, the addition of Jeff Ireland for the uh, director of college scouting, Terry Fontenot, and their whole uh, scouting staff, I just don't think we're going to see very many huge mistakes. I mean, let, let's but let, let's do point out one thing, Larry, and I think you would agree. Because of the way the formula works for the approximate value, uh, it, it is more likely to be slanted to older, um, uh, older tenures just because – it's it's it puts an emphasis in the formula on the careers of and the longevity of the careers. So players like a Brandon Cooks just haven't played long enough to kind of move up in a, the approximate value formula. So I think we'll see as we go on. Maybe guys like Akeem Hicks, uh, Brandon Cooks, they might end up in that top ten just because of the way the formula works. Right, and uh, Rob Ninkovich just missed the the top ten. He's actually uh, in this. He's the highest of the former Saints players to get away. And look, we're going to go through. Uh, we'll go through the top twenty two. I'll say that because I compiled the list and I actually put it in the comment section of uh, let's just call it modern day Saints era with Sean Payton and Drew Brees. And we're go- we'll go through some of this list and and just kind of give our thoughts on some of these players. Just a fun thing, just because. I came up with this idea, Jeff, just thinking, okay, Jarris Bird and Malcolm Jenkins, that switch really put the Saints back a couple of years as far as with that defense and the safety position, and now Malcolm Jenkins comes back. And so it kind of spurred my curiosity to go look back and see just, you know, those players that got away. And Sean Payton always brings up Malcolm Jenkins and Rob Ninkovich. So, so, Jeff, I'll start off with uh, – we'll go from 22 to number one and just kind of give our thoughts on where they're going. But but you are right, Jeff. Uh, the, the formula does value career longevity, which I think one of the reasons why Kerry Collins, his career went so long. And it's slanted more toward, say, quarterbacks are more valuable yeah. than a safety and so and a kicker. And so you have to also take that into consideration. So, But, Jeff, I'll start off with two guys – 
that uh, actually never made the 53-man roster. And one of these I totally forgot about, and you brought his name back to light, and he's certainly been playing in the NFL and will be playing with Tom Brady this year. We'll start off with two guys, uh, Cameron Brait and Dustin Hopkins. Jeff, why don't you, uh, why don't you start off with Cameron Brait since you were the guy who kind of brought that back to light to me? Well, yeah, he was a guy that was on the Saints practice squad, uh, was an undrafted free agent, ended up here, uh, wasn't here very long before he went back to Tampa and has had a great career uh, in Tampa. And I, I guarantee you that's a guy, if we ever got Peyton to talk about on the, on the, you know, on the side, he would bring him up because look at the, the Saints' tight end situation right now. They really don't have a really good young tight end that they could develop. Cameron Brake would, would have maybe eliminated – their need to even go out and get Jerry Cook. Who knows? Uh, so those kind of decisions, and credit to the Bucks for getting him back, uh, but I'm sure that's one, especially every year when they play this team twice a year, that they regret because Cameron Brates turned out to be a very, very good, reliable, trusty player. I mean, if he's got the numbers he's got with Jameis Winston throwing to him, just think what he would have if he had a, a, you know, a Hall of Famer like Drew Brees throwing to him. And then you bring up someone like, Dustin Hopkins, and my goodness, I remember that training camp at the Greenbrier. Of course, Jeff, you know the the kicking Bermuda Triangle that was the Saints for so long. Uh, now that they've got Will Lutz, uh, they probably won't need a kicker for another, I don't know, 10 years at least, unless he startly, suddenly gets the yips, which I don't anticipate. But I just remember that training camp at the Greenbrier and – Dustin Hopkins was consistently better than Zach Hocker. If you remember Zach Hocker, he lasted all of what, two games? Mm -hmm. And I remember that training camp. Dustin Hopkins was consistently better than Zach Hocker in training camp. And Zach Hocker made one more field goal in the preseason, and they went with Zach Hocker. Zach Hocker is no longer in the league, and now Dustin Hopkins has been with Washington ever since. So, one of those kicking blunders, but I'm thinking now they feel okay with their decision to move on to Hopkins because Will Lutz has become one of the best kickers in the league. Well, it just shows you, Larry, how close some of these personnel calls are. Uh, you know, I think it comes down when you get down to the very end of the roster, uh, the 50, every year just about 48 or so roster spots are pretty much, uh, you know, in signed in ink, you know that they're going to make the roster. We're really talking about a handful of positions. And that year, it was was a competition from the get-go between those two kickers. And Dustin Hopkins, you could tell he was going to kick in the NFL. And he was a very good kicker. Uh, You could see it even uh, in practice. And um, I was surprised that they did go in the the direction they did. I think a lot of us were. And uh, Hopkins has turned out to be one of the better, more reliable guys in the league right now. But you're right. Will Lutz uh, is a Pro Bowler, and who who thought the Saints would ever have a Pro Bowl kicker in the Peyton era? As many times as he went in the merry-go-round of of, of kickers, uh, because he just could not settle on one guy. For I remember, he had to bring back John Carney a second time. Like John was like in his 40s when they brought him back. Yeah, that's when he had to replace uh, Garrett Hartley when Garrett Hartley got hurt. And then remember, Hopkins was actually on the practice squad. The year before. Uh, so mm-hmm. it was basically, uh, I'm trying to even remember who the kicker was because there's been so many kickers who he was kind of waiting in the wings 
I, I honestly don't remember. Was it Kai Forbath? Maybe. I, I really don't even remember at this point. There's been so many kickers. It's been I think it fun. was. Yeah, it might have been Kai Forbath. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, so Hopkins has moved on. Uh, let's go on to number 20 on this list and someone who I uh, am not a fan of. And uh, you uh, were not a fan of the move. Uh, Adrian Peterson, he has moved on from his four-game stint with the Saints and actually shown some life in Arizona, shown some life in Washington. And it seems like Adrian Peterson never even really happened with this team considering uh, where the running backs his turn start uh, when, uh, when they cut ties with him back uh, in 2017. Yeah, you know, that was a strange one. I can remember – us all gathered around Sean Payton out at the Zurich Classic when word was getting out that they were going after Adrian Peterson, or maybe it was after they had even signed him. And it just, he never seemed like a fit for this offense. He never seemed like a fit, uh, you know, culturally in the locker room. He wasn't a bad guy in the locker room. I mean, a lot of players really liked him. But I do distinctly remember talking to so many players uh, after they signed him and how in awe they were of him. I guess he has such a mythical. Uh, name in the league, uh, I think that fit into the Sean Payton mode of like bringing veteran guys that had come from winning programs and plug them into the roster because you think there's value to what they bring, not just on the field but off of it. But I never felt like this one uh, was just a good fit overall. And obviously the selection of Alvin Kamara in the draft kind of made it um, made him an expendable part. And yet, it was more about maybe the Saints not trusting Mark Ingram at that point. Remember, they're going into 2016. Right. They've come off 7-9, 7-9, and Ingram actually was playing pretty well. Uh, you just figured they needed a complimentary piece and got Kamara. And then they went out – or was it like four days before the draft? It was, I think yeah, it was, it was before right, the draft. Exactly. And it was during that Zurich Classic period. You're right. And they signed him, and you're thinking, what what is going on here? So it was more to me towards – I'm not trusting Mark Ingram, and look, obviously we've seen Mark Ingram uh, legitimately make a Pro Bowl with Kamara in 2017. Uh, so, uh, and now Ingram, of course, uh, went on and had a gangbuster season in Baltimore, and he is not on this list yet. He's someone who probably will jump higher on this list as the years go on. Yes. But uh, that, so that's that's kind of a prime example, one year removed. So, all right, let's move on to uh, well. He's tied with 18, but I'm going to give him uh, his uh, his day by himself, and that's Tracy Porter. Uh, look, he and, and people are wondering, wow, Tracy Porter is this low on this list, whether he's tied for 18th or 19th. But, again, it goes on to show where it takes his whole career with the Saints, not just two of the greatest plays in Saints history, uh, which everyone will remember him for, uh, as opposed to him being – uh, someone that the Saints let walk away after his rookie contract. I mean, they they felt like the, they wanted to move on from him. So I think people kind of uh, forget about that aspect, that Jabari Greer was a better fit uh, than Tracy Porter as an overall corner. But Porter, of course, gets the recognition. This is one thing I would say about the approximate value that I'm kind of mystified by. It feels to me like, Larry, that cornerbacks are very low-rated in this value formula. I don't know why, uh, but if you look back at Tracy Porter's career, his highest season of approximate value was a six 
uh, throughout his entire Saints tenure. The highest value he had in the season was a five. If you look right now at Marshawn Lattimore, I mean, Marshawn Lattimore, I think, is way undervalued according to the formula. I don't know what it is, uh, but the point is, Tracy Porter was a a good example of them deciding uh, they could maybe upgrade. They probably had a number for him. Very similar to Von Bell this past year. It wasn't that they didn't think he was a decent player or could fit in with them, but they they have a number in mind for their value on a certain player. And if someone else on the market uh, is going to beat them to it, uh, they're not going to budge on that and move on. They have to they have to stay true to their philosophy on those kind of things. It's when you start, uh, you know, uh, going off off track on that, you're going to end up uh, making a mistake. And so I think they probably made the right decision on Tracy Porter because I, I don't think he ever really uh, achieved greatness in, in anywhere else he went. I think he had one decent season in Oakland, but he bounced around. It was amazing to me. His last five years in the league, he played for uh, five, four different teams in, in five seasons. Well, I don't think he'll have to worry about ever not being loved in New Orleans. So if you, if you got that going for you and you are the, uh, in an iconic photo uh, that will be forever played uh, and displayed in video, uh, I, I, think, yeah, I think you'll be good. I think in Saints lore, he'll be much higher than the next two guys on this list, uh, Danny Clark and Jolon Dunbar. Uh, <laughs> see, l- nice guys, solid players. Jeff, let's just move on from those two just to save yeah. time. <laughs> it's okay. amazing to me that their numbers would be higher than Porter's. Well, Dunbar's is, Dunbar's is the same as Porter's, and then Clark's is one tick higher. But Danny Clark went on and played forever. I mean, he, he, was, he went on and played maybe like another decade or something when, from his time when he left the scene. Right. So, it's, uh, so longevity does have to, something to do with that. Now, uh, the next two players on this list uh, certainly uh, come from – uh, different uh, ways of getting on the team. Dante Stallworth and Jonathan Casillas. And, of course, Dante Stallworth uh, did not last long in the Sean Payton uh, era, uh, of course, being traded away. And then Jonathan Casillas uh, being an undrafted rookie to make that team in 2009. And, uh, you know, a lot of people remember him just being kind of a kamikaze diving in on, on, on ambush uh, to kind of shoo players away from uh, from Chris Reese recovering that fumble. Yeah, now Stallworth was a great example of a guy that that I think if he would have been on the team later in, in Peyton's tenure, he would have survived somehow. They would have gotten it out of him. But I think right back then, Sean Payton came in with the Bill Parcells mantra of establishing culture, and he was going to use Dante Stallworth as an example. And he moved on from him very quickly. Obviously, the emergence of Marcus Colston uh, as a lead receiver at the X position uh, facilitated that move. But Sean Payton was basically just sending a message uh, that they weren't going to allow, you know, non-professional type of behavior. And Dante Starworth was a good dude. Nobody ever thought he wasn't a good guy. I think uh, he's a smart guy, but he was a product of a previous uh, tenure, the Jim Haslett tenure, and was somewhat undisciplined back then as a young guy. He went on to have a good career in, in the NFL and is having a good post-playing career as well. Uh, but he was a victim, I think, in a lot of ways of Sean Payton saying, we've got to make some examples out of players. And this is a guy who was a former first-round draft pick who's had some production, and we're going we're gonna to basically open the eyes of everybody in this locker room by, by moving on from him. 
Well, and remember, uh, his reasoning behind that was because this guy who none of us would have ever pegged uh, to have opened eyes uh, was Marcus Colston. And that was one of the reasons why he felt comfortable trading Dante Stallworth. And of course, uh, Sean Payton and Mickey Loomis can't say they were wrong on that one. And at the same time, they got a draft pick. And then, oh, by the way, bring in their starting middle linebacker for the next two years, which I'm sure they didn't anticipate Mark Simino being that guy. But he was until Jonathan Vilma came. So obviously that trade panned out. And Casillas, look, he was a uh, look. He he was promising. Then he got injured, and he never really kind of. Uh, well, kudos to him for being a star. You know, moving on and being a starter. Uh, you know, but I think the Saints, uh, injury wise, I know he got hurt, and that kind of slowed his career down. So, uh, but no, Casillas uh, went on to play. I, I don't know another seven years in the league after leaving the Saints. So. Uh, you yeah, know, one won of those two guys. Super Bowls. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, yeah. so he went on to to uh, a good career, uh, of course, elsewhere. But all right, our next two players on this list, Tom Johnson and Jeff Fain. Of course, Tom Johnson uh, just all of a sudden became uh, really lights out with the Vikings uh, after being a situational pass rusher. Saints picked him up out of the CFL. And then, of course, Jeff Fain. He came over in another trade, 2006 draft, uh, where the Saints picked him up in a second-round pick that became Roman Harper, and uh, he went on to sign with Tampa uh, for a lucrative deal after leaving the Saints for a couple of years. Yeah, and, and two different situations there. I, I always feel like Tom Johnson was one of those guys. I kind of put him in the same umbrella as Akeem Hicks in that you know you had these big defensive linemen, these deep – Sometimes those guys take a little while to develop. We've seen that with David Onyemata. Uh, you know, they develop a little bit slower, and it's probably true in the Marcus Davenport situation. Well, I guess time will tell with him, but I try and tell uh, Saints fans that ask about him to be patient because we've seen how Tom Johnson and Akeem Hicks developed after they left this organization. Uh, I think sometimes maybe they, they gave up a little quickly, but I also kind of chalk this up, uh, the Tom D- Johnson decision, to credit the Vikings for recognizing him and fitting him into their scheme. But also that was during that defensive period, Larry, where the Saints just couldn't get out of their own way. Uh, You know, they made bad decision after bad decision. Uh, Went through a bunch of different defensive coordinators, changed their scheme. So I I, I often bring that up uh, in relation to, say, Malcolm Jenkins, in that not necessarily the player was bad, they were not being coached very well. They were not being trained very well. Just everything on that side of the ball was a mess. And you really have to look at it through that prism uh, because I really think some of the decision-making back then organizationally left a lot to be desired. And guys like Tom Johnson were able to slip away, become productive somewhere else because the Saints really didn't have a clear vision like we see on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, they have a clear vision for personnel there. Over and over we see players come to New Orleans – perform better in New Orleans than they do anywhere else. Uh, and that's the, at least in that period, was the exact opposite case uh, on defense. And Jeff, there are a lot of players on that did not make, say, this top 22 list where big names, and they did not perform better uh, elsewhere. And the prime example would be at the very bottom of the list, I cut it off, uh, and it was Robert Meacham. So that's kind of a prime example of, uh, of that. And say Lance Moore, same sort of thing. But, uh, but let's pivot on to our next player on the list. And a lot of people probably feel 
higher about this player than maybe the value is, but he was only with the Saints for three years. And honestly, by the end of his three-year tenure, he was falling off a bit. I think people kind of don't take that into account, and that's Darren Sproles. You know, he had an incredible year, 2011, uh, was part of that really uh, dynamic, incredible offense, return skills there. And look, he was kind of fading away, Jeff, by the end. And so the Saints felt comfortable in trading him. And then he leaves, and I think he goes to two or three Pro Bowls like immediately. <laughs> so yeah. uh, he kind of got rejuvenated uh, in that return role uh, for the Eagles. Had the best year of his career in 2011. Set, I think, still the club record for yards from all-purpose yards. Uh, uh, he was part of that dynamic record-setting offense. And you're right. Then all of a sudden his – Numbers started going down. He had a few more injuries. And I think the Saints thought, hey, let's get some value for this player. And um, and before, you know, it's better to always get rid of a player a year before he drops off. And I think that's what they thought. Credit to Philadelphia for using him the right way. The one thing that surprised me a little bit is just because I know culturally uh, Sproles is a guy that every teammate, every coach just revered his work ethic, his practice habits. Uh, he was a leader on that team, even though he's not a very outspoken guy, he's a quiet guy. Uh, he was very highly respected. And that's the kind of guy the Saints uh, like in their locker room. So it kind of surprised me a little bit. He was not in any way a problem. And if you talk to, say, a guy like Drew Brees, uh, he holds him in the highest regard. Uh, and what a great career he ended up having. I know he just retired, uh, but uh, that was one I think the Saints probably regret. But, it, it, you know, I think they went through Travaris Cadet a few stages with him, trying to replace him in that role. But they never really found a guy completely able to do the multifaceted things he could do until they got until they got Alvin Kamara in the draft. Well, he was what they wanted out of Reggie Bush. Uh, and so, you know, you got more uh, – Sproles played a better Reggie Bush role uh, for the most part than Reggie Bush did. And, of course, Alvin Kamara plays better than both of them. So – uh, but yeah, obviously Sproles was part of two playoff runs and uh, went on to a really good career uh, the rest of the way with Philadelphia. Uh, all right, next two players, definitely uh, different scenarios, but uh, uh, and one player is probably going to jump on this list as we move forward. Uh, and this is tied for 10th on my list. Uh, it's Jonathan Goodwin and Kenny Stills. Of course, uh, Goodwin ended up coming back to the Saints after a good run with the 49ers. But Kenny Stills is now on his third team. Uh, he's with the Texans and was part of that offseason where it was the trading bonanza. I mean, Ben Grubbs and Jimmy Graham and then Kenny Stills. It was <laughs> it was roster transformation time, uh, and Stills was involved in that, Jeff. Yeah, I remember you and I sitting in Sean Payton's office talking to him in that offseason uh, when they traded Jimmy Graham, they traded Kenny Stills, and him explaining – uh, the decisions that they made, those were tough decisions back then because they knew both those players were good players. Uh, and he said, I remember playing his day, him saying, Kenny Stills is going to go on and have a really good career. Uh, and they knew it. So they knew he would be productive, uh, but they were trying to shore up other places in the roster, uh, spe- specifically the defense. And they had to use some of their offensive assets. And I think it speaks to the confidence that Sean Payton and the offensive staff have that they feel like they can find replacements and still be productive offensively, even uh, letting go players that, that that they invested in draft picks in, like Jimmy Graham uh, and Kenny Stills. And I, I do remember the one thing he said about Kenny Stills. He said it off the record. I feel like 
the statute of limitations is up now. We can talk about <laughs> it. Was he said that he 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 never wanted to block? I remember him saying that that day. And and if you talk to any Saints receivers, uh, that is a high priority for them. I know they're not paid to block per se, but they want the receivers to be all around players. And Kenny Stills really never bought into that. Uh, it helped uh, push the longevity of guys like. Meacham and Devry Henderson. Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys are blockers. Even Brandon Coleman uh, couldn't catch yep. a cold, but he could block. So he st- he was able to stay on the team probably a little longer than that. But uh, And then, of course, Jonathan Goodwin. Uh, we know his career with the Saints. He, he filled in perfectly once they traded Jeff Fain. And then he went on uh, to a really good career for three years in San Francisco, but came back for one more year with the Saints and uh, Jeff, just his career overall. I mean, remember, he, he came to the Saints as a backup to backup Jeff Fain. And uh, he had played for the Jets and all. And so, I mean, he had a very long, good career. Uh, and, of course, uh, after the Saints, uh, kudos to him for getting a nice contract in San Francisco. Yeah, and a total, total pro. Like, Goody was a guy you could go to uh, in the locker room. He would explain stuff to you in the offense. Uh, that was a guy when they signed him. I didn't know really much about him, to be honest with you. Uh, it seems like they they're able to plunder good players from the Jets, doesn't it? <laughs> Over the years, uh, they get uh, Demario Davis, uh, uh, John Vilma. I mean, we can go down the list of guys that they've gotten away from there because that is such a dysfunctional organization. And I feel like Goodwin fit into that mode. Uh, he ended up being a lot better player than I ever dreamed he would, and was a very versatile player. Uh, in a lot of ways, could run block and pass block. Very smart. Um, and, yeah, had a great career when he went on to San Francisco as well. And before we get on to our next part of our list, look, just a reminder, uh, the athletic. I mean, obviously, we ha- are dealing with tournaments have been canceled and leagues are suspended and there hasn't been live game on TV in what feels like a year from now. And yeah. we've barely only been like a couple weeks into this thing. But, look, Jeff. You me, our entire staff, 400 of the best sports writers out there. We're doing incredible creative work right now, incredible storytelling uh, in some of these very strange, of course, very uncertain times. Uh, we're still doing a wonderful job. And look, one of these stories, uh, like the one about Brazilian soccer legend Ronaldinho being in a Paraguayan jail right now. Uh, what's going on with Todd Gurley and the Rams? Of course, that's uh, all seemingly beyond repair as Todd Gurley is now with the Falcons. Jeff, you were telling me about a great story that you read, and you have no interest in your mind in Texas basketball. Yeah, last night, I mean, like all of us, we're trying to stay sane in this crazy time, right? And how, how do you find uh, ways to pass the time? We're all binge-watching stuff on Netflix, uh, on TV, and after a while, I can only watch so much of Tiger Kings of the world, even though I've devoured that. And I jump on to The Athletic, and it I can go down a rabbit hole on a variety of stories. It's amazing how much content is on there. I've gotten a lot of my friends, colleagues to subscribe that have been hesitant to subscribe uh, during that open 90-day window. And they all come back to me and say, I can't believe I didn't have this. Uh, because, uh, you know, I was afraid to maybe subscribe or to pay a little money. And this story last night, Larry, would validate the the meager amount that you pay for a subscription. It's less than a, a smoothie a month is the way I put it. I mean, it's basically $5 a month. And right now we have discounted rates, so it's even cheaper than that. But I dive in last night, Brian Hamilton, great college basketball writer, 
uh, one of the many great writers we have, basically got granted all access with the Texas basketball team. Shaka Smart's season is very up and down this year. But he had five months with the team, and it's a great story. It's a deep dive. Uh, you don't have to be interested in Texas basketball to be fascinated by looking inside how a coach tries to develop culture, especially in college basketball today where it's so um, uh, transient, the, the sport, the rosters turn over every year with all these transfers and how they try to put together a team in a season. It's basically a mini version of a season on the brink, the famous John Feinstein book uh, that he wrote on Indiana basketball. This is basically one season, uh, but another example of great work going on at The Athletic. And I know you and I are biased. We both work there. But it's part of the reason why we went to work at this place because the content and the vision for what we're trying to do is so clear. And um, I, you know, I couldn't be happier about uh, working there. I'm more proud to work with people that put out stuff like this. Absolutely. Uh, it inspired me to do this deep dive in the history of the Saints, which uh, you know, if I was working somewhere else or didn't have the platform to do it, I wouldn't be able to do that. So uh, you know, it, it's really a uh, part of this. And look, right now uh, at The Athletic, we keep you connected to the team, to the athletes, to the sports you love in unique ways. And if you sign up now, you can jump a part of The Athletic family. Go to theathletic.com slash Duncan Holder. Of course, that's where all of our podcasts are. And you can receive 40% off of an annual subscription. Look, games aren't being played right now, but the stories that draw us all the sports, those don't go away. So go to theathletic.com slash Duncan Holder for 40% off of an annual subscription. We hope to see you there. And we're going to keep the storytelling going as the draft goes. Uh, there's always tremendous storytelling, whether it's fun, whether it's serious, deep dives, you name it. We will have all that at The Athletic. And let's jump back into uh, our list here, which is part of the, the great coverage we do here at The Athletic. Our next player on this list have them at number eight. And Jeff, that is Jermon Bushrod. And often, Jeff, we reference back to, uh, you know, conversations we have uh, with Sean Payton and, say, Mickey Loomis. And Jermon Bushrod was one of those players where uh, I remember he had a short-term contract. Uh, he signed like a two-year deal, almost kind of a prove-it deal. And he parlayed that into a contract where Pro Bowl money and – it was a ceiling. The Saints didn't want to go above that ceiling, and Jermon uh, was able to uh, cash in, play for the Bears, play for the Dolphins, and, of course, came back and really aided uh, in, in a pinch uh, uh, back in 2018 when he had to fill in uh, for the injured Teron Armstead. What a great draft pick that was, right? I mean, that's going to go down as one of the better value picks the Saints have ever made. You get a guy like Towson. Uh, what was it, the fourth or fifth round or something? Fourth like round that, pick, yeah. Had. And it was just like, yeah. what, who is this guy? And then a couple of years later, yeah. he's starting, and he went to Super Bowl and goes to two Pro Bowls. <laughs> right, started left tackle in the, pro, in the, in the, in the season when uh, this team not only won the Super Bowl, but also had that uh, 2011 team that broke all the records on offense. He, ca- he cashed out big time, came back. Good example of a guy that understands the New Orleans culture, and they're willing to bring back. Uh, but also, the Saints aren't going to really go too high in their contract demands. And I think the reason, not to get off track here, but the reason Andres Pete ended up back here is I don't think his market was as high as everyone suspected would be for him, a Pro Bowl-level guard. And the Saints were able to get him back at the right price uh, that fit into their salary cap uh, formula. Uh, otherwise, he probably would have been a very similar, uh, you know, 
example as a Jermon Bushrod, a guy that comes in, plays well in a, in a dynamic offense, and is able to cash out. I don't know about the right price, but <laughs> right price for Andres Pete, maybe. <laughs> but I don't know about the right price. For well, that's what Saints. I mean for Andres Pete. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he cashed in. How but about I mean, that? Yeah, but they uh, were not going to pay pay too much for Andres Pete. Let's put it that way. Well, people are going to argue that they overpaid anyway. So we will uh, right. moving on. We, that's uh, that will be conversations to be had uh, probably for the rest of his career with the Saints. But next player on the list certainly came out of nowhere. Number seven on this list, and it is Chris. Ivory, and uh, it goes to show you, man, he performed. Uh, he's one of those guys who actually went to the Jets uh, in a trade uh, in the 2013 draft. The Saints traded him and a pick and ended up moving up to go get uh, John Jenkins, uh, if you remember, uh, the defensive yep. tackle uh, from Georgia at the time. And Chris Ivory was definitely – the number three back in a uh, running back platoon here in New Orleans, and he cashed in a couple of times with the once with the Jets and then the Jaguars, and uh, you know he was a number one back leaving the Saints. Of course, uh, you know it, for the Saints they they were not going to pay someone who uh, could play three games and then get injured, and uh, you know he was he was kind of limited in what he would do offensively. But other teams kind of took advantage uh, of kind of his. Uh, bowling ball mentality uh, after he left New Orleans. Yeah, he was an amazing, amazing find. I mean, I remember distinctly, Larry, you you take part in this every year as well. For our listeners out there, we, we had to have a little unofficial contest every training camp uh, in the media core where we uh, all decided who's going to pick out. Uh, we're, we're all going to pick a undrafted free agent, or it doesn't necessarily have to be an undrafted free agent, but usually is one a rookie, uh, somebody that's on the roster that wasn't drafted or a free agent, uh, you know, a big-name free agent, and we we pick who's going to make the roster, and we do it usually the first week. And I distinctly remember standing there in, in an indoor practice facility practice and seeing Chris Ivory run through the defense, and I'm like, who is this guy? He was huge. He was fast. Uh, and just thinking, how does a guy like that not get drafted? How does he end up at some small school? And um, sure enough, he made the roster, was the leading rusher for the team as a rookie and ended up uh, having a couple of good seasons. Then he ended up making the Pro Bowl with the Jets, ran for over 1,000 yards. Obviously, the Saints survived without him. Another example of them being able to move on from a perimeter skill position player and still produce, which they did without him, and took advantage of a guy that they didn't really invest anything in, and they ended up getting uh, you know some return on that investment. And he was a part of a – a running back group. I remember there was one time a couple of years later, Larry, when it was him and Darren Sproles and Pierre Thomas. I mean, they were unbelievable. I think maybe Mark Ingram was also there a little bit of overlap, maybe Mark's rookie year, but they were all on the roster at the same time. I would argue that was the best running back core the Saints have ever had. Yeah, it was those four. Uh, and so it was like, what do you do? You know, uh, so that's, that's, that's right. one of the reasons why they felt like they could move away. From Chris Iver because in th- 2013 they still went into that year and they had Sproles and they had Pierre Thomas and they had Mark Ingram so they felt like they could get some return off of Chris Ivory so all right next player someone else they traded uh, Brandon Cooks and he has been in the news of course lately uh, sounds like he might be on the trading block again with with the Rams and uh, you know I think it's funny people might argue boy what man 
couldn't the Saints really use Brandon Cooks right now? Uh, you know, they didn't have a complimentary receiver to Mike Thomas. Now they got Emmanuel Sanders. Uh, but also, uh, look, Brandon Cooks is could be on his fourth team. And if you don't trade Brandon Cooks, then you don't get Ryan Ramchick. So uh, I've had to do a mea culpa in the past when we uh, – I remember when we worked together at the time, Spicune, Jeff, I wrote a column trashing the trade, and then I had to come back a year later – on the athletic and say, well, my bad, everything's cool that they traded away Brandon Cooks. Yeah, look, Cooks has been productive. Um, and he, and I, I've always kind of defended him a little bit. I don't think he went about it the right way. He let his agent get involved. And that doesn't sit well with the Saints. We, we How many years we've covered them. There's just a way internally to handle matters. He wasn't happy uh, with his role in the offense. Uh, that's not the way you do it, putting it out in the media uh, letting your agent uh, stir the pot. They just don't operate that way, and Brandon Cooks kind of paid the price for that. But other than that, he was not a bad guy. People make him out like he was a diva. and you know We have this mentality in New Orleans. There's a little bit of a tribalism that goes on, and you're either with us or against us. And I think when players leave like Brandon Cooks, there's a tendency from some segment of the fan base to trash players. And Brandon Cooks, if you talk to his teammates, and I've talked to a number of them off the record about him, uh, nobody rips Brandon Cooks. They all liked him. Drew Brees likes him. The problem with Cooks is he's a very limited receiver. He can only run certain routes. Uh, he's not a very versatile player. And I think that's what happened when, in L.A. is they realized, hey, this guy can only do so many things, and we're paying him this amount of money. And credit to Brandon Cooks and his agent. They've been able to, to make a lot of money for a player that probably is uh, – uh, somewhat limited in, in the route tree that he can run. And just remember, the Saints were going to pay one wide receiver, and they chose to pay Michael Thomas. And I don't think anyone can fault him there. And, yeah, you look at the Rams situation. Of course, he went to the Patriots, and then a year later he gets traded to the Rams. And you look at that situation, and they have Robert Woods, and they have Cooper Cup, and then you, Brandon Cooks is making more than all of them, and I think that's why uh, they are trying to trade him. Uh, potentially, and he's already asking out again. So, uh, look, it's uh, you know Brandon Cooks, talented player, but uh, look, I don't think the Saints did uh, a bad thing in moving on from him. Next player on the list at number five, Jeff Duncan's all-time favorite Saints player on planet Earth. No, I'm not talking about Taysom Hill. Reggie Bush, uh, of course, he had his best rushing numbers by far leaving the Saints when he um, had 1,000-yard seasons with the Dolphins and then with Detroit. But, uh, look, that was that 2011 season when they had the lockout and they draft Mark Ingram and Reggie Bush puts on Twitter like 30 seconds later. Uh, basically, uh, it's been real New Orleans. And, uh, you know, obviously Reggie Bush, uh, I, I think of him as one of the best draft picks ever in Saints history just because of what he was at that time. Uh, but like overall numbers, he probably had a better career outside of New Orleans than he did inside of New Orleans. Yeah, he's one of the few guys I would put into that category, one of the few perimeter offensive players that actually produced more when he left than when he was there. His best year by far was his rookie year. And uh, I've always you know, kind of been lukewarm on Reggie Bush only because it wasn't that I had anything against Reggie Bush or even – didn't think he was a good player. I just felt like there was so much hype around Reggie Bush that uh, I've never seen a player, and obviously he's one of the most decorated college players in history, but just the hype around him. And I just remember 
internally at the Times Picayune. We had a run Reggie run graphic that we ran every week. And, uh, you know, he was basically a role player, you know, a very good role player, but a role player in this offense. And my problem with him as a player has always been that he had a ton of negative plays. And I've learned to appreciate, say, a guy like Drew Brees, who hardly ever has any negative plays, that when he does have one, everybody jumps on him because it's so rare. I think people over time have forgotten all the negative plays Reggie Bush had, how many fumbles he had, uh, how many you know running backwards plays he had. Those are drive killers. And I think he had enough of them to where the Saints felt like, hey, we need to maybe move on. And I think he also matured and got more professional as a player as he moved on. We forget sometimes, Larry, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody, these guys come in, they're in their early 20s and uh, you know sometimes 20, 21 years old, and they grow up, and I think Reggie Bush definitely fit into that category. You talk to Reggie Bush now and talk to him about his old saint self, he'll tell you, you know, he was still learning to become a professional back then. And if he knew uh, then what he knows now, um, certainly he would have been a lot better. I could tell you no question for being around him every day uh, from 2006 till he left uh, after, uh, you know, leading up to 2010 after he, he left, got traded that offseason. He grew up as a as a guy. There's zero question about it. He grew up as a guy, and you could tell just by his role in other teams. He grew up, and he learned to be a more north south runner. I mean, that's what helped him uh, become a better player on other teams. But he just wasn't that guy. And of course, uh, they still had other options. They they weren't using him as a primary back in New Orleans, and injuries I think played a little part in that. Um, yep. And he got you know he he got healthy again probably back at the end of 2009. And then, of course, we saw what he was able to do in that Arizona game, uh, the bring the wood game. So, But, yeah, obviously, uh, Reggie Bush is Reggie Bush. No one's going to forget Reggie Bush <laughs> with this franchise. But uh, number four, I don't think Saint, a lot of Saints fans remember this guy uh, because I don't even think he was ever – maybe he was on the 53-man roster, maybe. But Todd Davis, he is a linebacker for the Broncos – who the Saints allegedly tried to hide when the Broncos picked him up off the practice squad. Well, obviously he had to have been on the. Uh, I think this. I think he got waived, and the the Broncos uh, picked him up, or he's on the Saints practice squad. Whatever the Saints tried to like hide him and uh, allegedly and not let him leave because they liked him, and now he's become one of the Broncos. I mean, their defense is not that good now, but. He's become one of the Broncos' best defensive players and linebacker for the past three or four years, Jeff. Yeah, I love that story. That that surprised me. I'd almost forgotten that they had a that they had Todd Davis on the roster because he has been a very solid player and a very productive player, durable, plays every down just about, and also um, uh, very rare, rarely misses a game. He started sixty three games the last uh, four or five seasons in Denver, so that might be a good athletic story, Larry. The, the, the real story about what happened with Todd Davis. <laughs> I'm sure Sean Payton would be like, we didn't do anything wrong. Mickey Loomis, what are you talking about? I have no idea. Todd's going to be like, they hit me in a trash can and they tried to like talk to my agent and, and give me a contract. Like, yeah, like you got picked up off waivers. You can't like it, that. That story was so silly, even though the NFL didn't find anything wrong. It's one of those funny urban legend stories, which who knows? That, that does sound like a good story. Uh, we need to get our our Denver crew on the the real backstory on Todd Davis, and then see what the Saints say. But uh, look, top three players. None of these guys probably surprise you. 
Uh, number three on this list is Akeem Hicks. Uh, obviously, Saints fans are familiar uh, with the story there. Uh, look, played really well in 2013. Jeff, another one of those byproduct of the Saints changing defenses and not knowing what to do with a guy. And then uh, he goes to the Patriots, just like Brandon Cooks, then leaves the next year and goes to Chicago. Now he's become one of the better defensive tackles in the NFL. Injured last year, but had a dynamite 2018 season. And I'm sure will uh, when healthy, he's going he's gonna to jump back up to form here. Yeah, I think one of the problems with Hicks back then, that was when they were going through the 3-4 transition and 4-3 and uh, Rob Ryan, and he didn't really fit what they were doing. And I think they felt like they could move on from him, but they got so little in return on that trade. That's one of the few trades that I was just kind of scratching my head. Uh, I liked Akeem Hicks, man. I, mean, I liked him. He was a good dude. He was smart. He uh, he reminds me a lot of a better David Onyemata in that they got this this uh, guy from Canada who like didn't have much experience and ends up um, – I know at one time, he, I think he was a signee for LSU, uh, was a big-time recruit but fell through the cracks out there with some other issues. Uh, and the Saints are able to get him. I think they got him in the third round. And it's an amazing draft pick uh, and how good he's been. But he's been a leader everywhere he's been. And I know a lot of Saints fans try to argue, oh, well, the – the Patriots let him go. Go back and read about that. Uh, Bill Belichick wanted him back. Bill Belichick personally called him to try to talk him into re-signing in New England. But Bill Belichick, being Bill Belichick, it wasn't going to pay what the market was for Akeem Hicks. He took the money and ran. Uh, and that happens a lot with players. You can look at the this, this offseason alone, how many players have gone on from New England because they wouldn't pay them. Uh, good core players for the Patriots doesn't mean they're bad people. And again, I think there's been a little bit of a branding of Akeem Hicks over the years that has been unfair because the guy I dealt with was a good dude and well-liked and respected in the locker room. I was with you. I talked to him a lot all the time in the locker room. And, you know, I, I just think it was part of the, a culture shift that went south. I mean, that was part of when they had the defensive line. We've uh, – our own Catherine Terrell has dug deep into this back when we all worked at the Picayune together, how – uh, there were issues in the locker room, defensive line. He kind of got into Sean Payton's doghouse a little bit. Uh, and then he traded him away right after that for Michael Ho'omanawanui. And I remember a um, funny story where Cam Jordan was like, man, we got like a a, a, a bag of peanuts or something. And then I pointed in the yeah. locker room. I was like, no, you got that guy. And he's like, oh, oh, well, I, I like who, man. But but still, we didn't get enough. You know, he was he was just upset that they traded his his friend away. And obviously, he's a he's a, one of the better players in the NFL. And Jeff, back to the New England to Chicago story. Uh, Ryan Pace knew what kind of player Akeem Hicks was, so they went out and paid him. And so that uh, you know, you could dog out Ryan Pace for a lot of things, but not that one. Uh, and going back to his Saints roots and remembering Akeem Hicks. So, and he was the first pick in the 2012 draft because the Saints had traded away a, a, their first rounder in that year to move up to go get Mark Ingram the year before and lost the second round pick because of the bounty scandal. And so that's where Akeem Hicks falls in. But all right, number two, number one, these are no surprises. Number two is Malcolm Jenkins. Uh, we've, uh, we started this podcast just retelling the story a little bit about Jairus Bird, Malcolm Jenkins. And then number one, is, of course, Rob Ninkovich. Both of these guys, Sean Payton has talked about for years and years about the guys they let get away. And, I mean, Rob Ninkovich, that story is more hilarious as the years go by. Uh, they let him go. They bring him back again. 
They can't find a position. They even try him out at long snapper. And then, oh, he just goes on in New England and is a key piece to winning two Super Bowls. And uh, now Sean Payton, it's still the one that, that really kicks him in the butt. He, was, he would have been really – he would have jumped that 2006 class even further if the Saints figured out what kind of player he was. Yeah, and I really think that's a credit to New England – uh, for getting him in and putting him in the right fit in their in their scheme, he was a perfect fit for their defense. So we saw Kyle Van Noy kind of had a very similar impact and a very similar role there. A guy that didn't do much before he got to New England and became like a really uh, great player in New England. Uh, and I think Minkovich is that a, a perfect example of a guy that was a good player, but he was a perfect fit for New England and ended up having an incredible career there. Uh, very productive, durable, played almost every game, and won a bunch of Super Bowls. Uh, and, yeah, married a New Orleans girl. Uh, matter of fact, I think they are back here now, or at least back here part-time in the New Orleans area. Uh, and then we we discussed Malcolm Jenkins uh, over and over. I mean, that was just a, a mistake. And, look, there was one of the few ones they made, along with Ninkovich. Uh, this organization's track record with personnel, very rarely did they let guys – like Nikovich and Jenkins that are not only productive on the field, but also great leaders, great community people off the field. Very rarely do you let those guys out of the building, and those were obviously two ones they'd like to have back. And, Jeff, of this whole list we just did as we're about to wrap up this edition of the Duncan Holder podcast, I mean, those two guys, uh, you could probably point to Hicks uh, too, but of the other ones, I mean, Todd Davis, that was uh, – you could look at that and be like, what the heck? Uh, that's like a fluky thing, but, of course, he played well. But – of the other ones, I wouldn't call many of them straight up mistakes. Would you? I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so no. far as boy, it really just set them back. I mean, there's only maybe that top four, maybe really just the top three. You could say, man, those were just flat out errors, and they were able to overcome basically the losses of of everybody we talked to about today. Yeah, I think it's important to have context uh, and understand the circumstances. Every one of them is different. Every decision is different. And, uh, uh, you know, like I, I, I'll, I'll bring up the, the De, uh, DeAndre Hopkins situation this offseason. I know every, it's, it's very uh, common to see everybody ripping on the Texans for getting rid of DeAndre Hopkins. But every situation is different. Uh, they feel internally he was a problem in their locker room. Uh, they had good receivers that they can go to. I guess what I'm saying is you never know what's going on internally, what the decisions are. And every decision you can't just look at in a vacuum uh, on the surface. And I think in the case of the Saints, each one of these decisions was different. And um, sometimes they had a player waiting that they felt good about, that they wanted to uh, give more playing time to. Sometimes they're financial. Uh, sometimes they, you know, there's just other things involved. And uh, sometimes it's um, more complicated than just on the surface of what you think. All right. Well, that was a fun podcast. Good, good off-season fodder, timely fodder. And, of course, uh, we're going to keep that up here at The Athletic, uh, despite the games with drafts coming up. Uh, we're certainly going to dive into that more. Uh, we've got all kinds of coverage coming up down the line leading up to the draft. Uh, and just a quick teaser, I'm actually working on a story right now uh, about Emmanuel Sanders, where he fits within the offense. What are his best routes? Uh, can you use him on the outside? Can you use him on the slot? Uh, so pretty uh, cool dive that I've been working on right now that should be coming up uh, down the line uh, shortly here at The Athletic. So, uh, look, we're going to be coming again. Theathletic.com slash Duncan Holder. You can get 40% off 
your annual subscription. So jump on now. So I want to thank our producer, Danielle, for uh, dealing with my technical difficulties before this pod. Uh, like I was the bad, uh, the bad one. Now Jeff has been that way. I'm now uh, the uh, the technology problem. We'll have to figure that out. So Jeff, you you can you can hand me the crown. You'll be okay. It's going to be cool. Uh, but uh, of course, I want to thank all of you for listening, and uh, we'll be back for another edition of the podcast next week. Or if breaking news happens, we will jump on and do a pod then. So for Jeff Duncan, I'm Larry Holder. Thanks again for jumping on the Duncan Holder podcast here on the Athletics Podcast Network.